This is The Guardian. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Warning. This episode contains strong language and graphic descriptions of violence that some listeners may find upsetting. Hi, my name is Chris Pomo. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Morsky, and I'm the author of The Retired Cops Investigating Unsolved Murders in One of America's Most Violent Cities. I began looking into the story after reading an article in the New York Times about a new era of policing in Camden, New Jersey, 
a small, poor, troubled post-industrial city not far from Philadelphia, and just a few minutes from where I grew up in a kind of white picket fence suburb. Historically, the police department in Camden has had a lot of problems. Corruption, a lot of excessive force complaints, and poor morale. There was a time around 2010 or 2012 when the cops in Camden basically stopped responding to certain kinds of calls. When the Times article was published in 2014, the police force had just been disbanded and then reconstituted with new personnel and an emphasis on reestablishing trust with the people of the city. The effort, which was largely based around community policing, had shown early signs of success with steep declines in crime. And the Times piece contained a throwaway line about the fact that as a part of this new effort, the police department had established its first cold case unit. Camden's new cold case unit struck me right away as a likely profile subject. For a long time, the city had been one of the most dangerous places in the United States. It was not unusual for Camden to land at or near the top of the list for per capita murder rates. I also knew that, like in many other cities in the U.S., particularly those that are poor and largely inhabited by people of color, the rate at which murders in Camden were solved had fallen precipitously in the last 30 years or so. You had dozens and dozens and dozens of unsolved murders going back decades. I was curious about how you could possibly address that backlog, what it would look like in practice, and what the work of this new unit might mean to city residents. In reporting the piece, I was delighted to find that the four detectives doing this work were an incredibly charismatic and, by the standards of cops, open and forthcoming group. But what surprised me most, in part no doubt due to my naivete and inexperience, I'd been a journalist for just a couple of years at the time, was how slow and painstaking the work of the cold case squad was. It more resembled what you might think of as the work of a historian or even an archaeologist than what we tend to see on television. They were reading and rereading old files and reports, digging through musty storerooms, comparing faded photographs. Once they had identified likely interview subjects, suspects, or persons of interest, tracking them down often proved difficult or impossible. Many of the folks who were connected in one way or another to these crimes, like a lot of people in the city, were and had been living extremely precarious lives, just barely holding on to homes, families, and livelihoods. They moved often and had their phone service shut off. Quite a few had died from drugs or violence. Marty Devlin, who was sort of the unofficial lead detective in the unit, a wisecracking, hard-boiled kind of guy, talked a lot about how the passage of time complicated cold case investigations. He was referring to the nuts and bolts of detective work, but what became apparent, and what I tried to bring out in the story, was the extent to which they were really up against the history of the city. Racist real estate practices that had prevented people from owning homes, the loss of thousands of jobs that came with the closure of factories and shipyards, the violent drug trade that replaced the old economy, and the distrust of cops that was in part a response to the historical sins of the police department. The Hall family, who are the protagonists of the case at the center of the story, really embodies the history of the city in many ways. They had worked in the factories and shipyards and even in the police department and had done very well. But the historical tides of the city ultimately caught up with them in terrible ways. In telling their story, I wanted to emphasize the ripple effect of unsolved murders on subsequent generations. Very recently, I finished reporting a piece about a wrongful conviction in St. Louis, Missouri, which shares quite a bit of history with Camden. Looking back on this 2016 story, at a moment when our understanding of policing and police investigation in America is very much in flux, it strikes me that there is a real danger in overemphasizing homicide solve rates, pressuring police departments to clear cases at any cost. Because that's the other side of the coin, wrongful conviction. No less tragic than the story of the Hall family and of others traumatized by unsolved homicides are the stories of those in prison for murders that are officially solved, but which in fact have reached no resolution at all. 
Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. The Retired Cops Investigating Unsolved Murders in One of America's Most Violent Cities by Christopher Pomorski On the evening of Sunday, 2nd of November, 1997, in the hours before her death, Robin Hall waited for the mail. Robin, who was 33, lived on the outskirts of Camden, New Jersey, the post-industrial city where she'd grown up. Her home, a one-bedroom garden unit that her younger sister Tracy was renting for, her, was largely empty. She owned no fridge and little furniture. Lately, Robin had borrowed money from friends. She had assured them that when her social security check arrived on Monday, all debts would be paid. Robin was living in a complex called the Ferry Station Apartments, a handful of pale brick buildings capped by low shingled roofs with brief lawns of crabgrass and mangy shrubs set beside the unkempt grounds of the New Camden Cemetery. The development stood a few blocks from Tracy's home, and Tracy, a police officer, had been keeping close tabs on Robin. Despite its stark appearance, Ferry Station seemed to her a vast improvement over the drug-wracked neighborhood where her sister had holed up that August while their mother was dying from cancer. Tracy had tussled with Robin before over her choices. In 1991, their brother, Troy, had been killed by a drunk driver. Grief-stricken, Robin had descended into drug abuse. At the time, crack cocaine was going for about $2.50 a vial in Camden, which routinely ranks among the poorest cities in the United States. Tracy began hearing about Robin from other cops, who often spotted her in tumble-down buildings known as the Taj Mahal and the Dog House, popular haunts of drug users. Since then, Robin had gone to rehab, but she struggled to stay clean. Though she had a head for figures, it had been years since she minded a teller's window at any of the local banks where she once worked, and longer still since she dealt blackjack in Atlantic City. It had been there, after a stint at college, that she met the father of her son, Amadeus, who had just turned nine. Now, her mother's illness had sent her into a tailspin. That Sunday evening, Robin went to see a friend named Stan Courtney, a 60-year-old retiree who also lived at Ferry Station. The two of them talked about Robin's boyfriend, whom she had visited that day at a local jail. He was due out in December, and she was excited for the homecoming. Robin and Courtney made plans to meet the next day. After their checks came, they would go grocery shopping. But Robin never showed up. On Tuesday afternoon, Courtney still hadn't heard from her. So I said, damn, let me go check on Robin, he later told a detective. As he approached her front door, he felt a premonition. The feeling's so strong, he remembered. I don't know why. Robin's door stood several inches ajar. In her bedroom, blood was spattered on the wall. Just looking at her, I knew that she had deceased, Courtney said. I mean, she was dead. No doubt in my mind. Robin lay prone, naked from the waist down, with her torso on the bed and legs draped below, like a climber trying to shimmy onto a ledge. Her head had been staved in. 
During the homicide investigation that followed, detectives failed to identify a suspect, and in subsequent years, none would emerge. For several days after Robin's body was found, Tracy struggled to think of a reason why someone might murder her sister. If Robin had been in debt, the lender could have come to Tracy for money. And though Robin had her faults, she had never been a troublemaker. If anything, she had fallen too easily under the influence of others. After Robin was buried, Tracy tried to put her speculation to rest. She had three daughters to look after, plus Amadeus, who came to live with them. In time, the cousins would call one another brother and sister, and Amadeus would call Tracy his mother. When he was asked where his real mother was, he would say that she had been murdered and that the crime had never been solved. But it seldom came up. Missing relatives were common among his classmates. Amadeus finished high school near the top of his class, which was small because many students didn't graduate at all. He won a football scholarship to a nearby college. At six foot two inches tall and a muscular 245 pounds, he was swift and broad-chested, a tenacious pursuer of quarterbacks. He wore dreadlocks in the fashion of Lil Wayne, whom he idolized, and had a wide, beautiful smile. In 2012, Amadeus, who was 23, was considering both law school and professional football. But since becoming a teenager, he had twice attempted suicide. That May, on the morning after one of his sister's proms, he declined to drive to the seaside with his family. Instead, he stayed in his room and composed a farewell note on his iPhone. Then he retrieved Tracy's service weapon from her bedside drawer and shot himself in the head. Early in 2015, Tracy got a call from Terry King, a lieutenant in the Homicide Division of the County Prosecutor's Office. Scott Thompson, Camden's police chief, had recently assembled a cold case squad dedicated to re-examining unsolved homicides. King asked whether Tracy would be willing to meet with the unit to discuss her sister's case. Robin had been one of 45 people murdered in Camden in 1997, an unremarkable year in a city that had averaged more than 40 killings annually over the last quarter century. The fact her murder had not been solved was hardly more unusual. In 1988, charges were filed in some 93% of Camden homicides. Since then, the rate at which murders are solved has declined precipitously, hitting 33% in 2014. Across the U.S., more than 210,000 homicides committed since 1980 remain unsolved, with many cold cases concentrated in poor, predominantly black cities such as Camden, Detroit, and New Orleans. Thompson had for some time been troubled by this trend, but local history, both recent and long in the past, had made it difficult for him to address the issue. The last 60 years had left Camden largely disconnected, legally and financially, from the rest of the state. And the dictates of the violent, informal economy that had replaced the city's once thriving industrial life made solving new crimes difficult, let alone old ones. Camden sits on the east bank of the Delaware River, just across the water from Philadelphia. During the Second World War, it housed a shipyard that employed 30,000 people. Franklin Hall, Robin's father, grew up not far from it. His own father worked there. Robin's mother, Augusta, spent her childhood in Camden, too. 
Both families had come north as a part of the Great Migration, the movement of roughly six million African Americans from the rural south into northern cities during the middle of the 20th century. In addition to shipyard work, Camden, which was then inhabited largely by Jewish, Polish, Irish, and German immigrants, held the promise of jobs and factories, making tin cans, cigars, radio parts, and other items. Between 1960 and 1970, however, Camden's population fell by 15,000. As in other cities across the country, white residents fled to the suburbs amid racial tensions. Camden is the capital of Camden County, a division comprising 37 majority white suburbs with a patchwork of affluent and working-class communities. More than 17,000 jobs disappeared. The shipyard went bankrupt, and factories were shut down. Urban renewal initiatives, often left unfinished, shunted thousands of minority residents into increasingly untenable living conditions. In 1973, Angelo Arichetti, the first of three Camden mayors to be jailed for corruption between then and 2000, described the route from his home to City Hall, it looked like the Viet Cong bombed us to get even. By the new millennium, Camden faced some of the worst violence in the U.S. The situation further deteriorated between 2011 and 2013, when the police department, which had long been hobbled by misconduct and incompetence, lost about half its staff to budget cuts. Police officers largely stopped responding to nonviolent crimes. Drug dealers, who then operated some 175 open-air markets in Camden, Don t-shirts bearing the slogan, It's Our Time. In 2012, the city of 78,000 tallied 67 murders, making it, per capita, the most dangerous in America. We have, like many urban centers, struggled with our murder clearance rate, Thompson acknowledged last year when I met him in his office. Under ideal circumstances, a homicide detective might address five or fewer cases per year. Between 2011 and 2013, investigators in the Homicide Division of the Camden County Prosecutor's Office handled perhaps 30 or 35 murders each. With the resources available to us, it was hard to keep up, Thompson said. Thompson is a lean, dark-haired man with warm, formal manners and rigidly upright posture. Since the layoffs, the department has been rebuilt with new hires. Thompson has emphasized community policing, dispatching beat cops to talk informally with residents and business owners in an effort to nurture relationships in non-enforcement situations. In 2014, the number of murders fell to 33, and last year, to 32. Still, Thompson knew that there were dozens of families in Camden like the Halls, most of them living with unresolved anger and grief. How could he expect to cultivate trust when so many crimes had gone unprosecuted? In the first months of 2014, as the city's violence ebbed, Thompson began putting together his cold case unit. Other cities around the country had squads devoted to long unsolved homicides, but the logistics and expense involved had made such a unit unfeasible in Camden. Thompson's was to be the first cold case team in the city's history. From the start, he knew that it would annoy some of his subordinates. 
The squad's existence might seem to imply that some homicide investigations had been botched in the first place. It's always a challenge when you create this kind of unit, Thompson told me. The very idea of it goes against the culture of police departments. You have to be careful to let folks know that it's not about critiquing other people's work. One of Thompson's first calls was to Marty Devlin, an investigator who had retired four years earlier, at 65, from the Camden County Prosecutor's Office in accordance with departmental policy. Thompson regarded Devlin as a natural first pick for the unit. Devlin had spent 28 years as a detective in Philadelphia before moving, in the early 1990s, to the prosecutor's office. There, he had achieved minor fame as the lead investigator in the successful murder prosecution of a prominent rabbi in the affluent suburb of Cherry Hill. A jovial man, with a black belt in taekwondo and a penchant for tweed blazers, Devlin sees himself as an inhabitant of the wrong era. I would have liked to be born in the time of marshals and sheriffs, he once told me earnestly. I truly love keeping the wolf from the lambs. Over the course of his career, Devlin has investigated more than 1,000 homicides. With characteristic self-confidence, he told me that he guessed he had solved more than 90% of them. Joe Fort, 60, another veteran investigator drafted out of retirement for the cold case unit, worked with Devlin at the prosecutor's office. When I first met Marty, I didn't know him from a can of paint, he told me. But if you ever happened to go to Philly on a case, people would talk about him like he was a god. The cold case team, which in addition to Devlin and Fort, includes just two other detectives, accords priority to cases with meat on the bone, those in which the first investigators left behind substantive material to work from, rather than killings that are the oldest or most horrific. Resources remain thin, and the county needs results to justify the unit. Not infrequently, it is the presence of DNA evidence that suggests that a murder file might warrant fresh examination, particularly in cases more than a few years old, for which genetic evidence has never been subjected to modern analysis. During the original investigation of Robin Hall's murder, Male DNA had been recovered from Robin's body, but no match had ever been found. It seemed like a good case for Devlin's team. Initially, though, when the prosecutor's office approached her, Tracy was apprehensive. She had lived for so long without resolution. Maybe, she thought, it would be better to let things be. Eventually, she came around. For reasons that she could not quite articulate, she felt more hopeful about finding answers this time. She knew that most Camden murders were not true mysteries. So-called secrets were often widely known, kept from authorities because of fear, disdain, or adherence to a code of non-cooperation. The people with whom Robin had associated during her last months had lived hard lives. Perhaps, she thought, they had re-evaluated their priorities, shifted their allegiances. Memories once addled by drugs might have grown clearer, and maybe the truth would finally be allowed to surface. Everyone has a conscience, Tracy thought. She had to believe that was true. Thank you for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. This is The Guardian.
This is The Guardian. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. For a homicide detective, determining precisely when a victim died is essential. It can confirm the alibis of some suspects while raising suspicions about others. The county medical examiner's report on Robin Hall's murder, which first appeared on Devlin's desk last summer, estimated that she had died 6 to 12 hours before the examiner's arrival on the scene, at 7.30 p.m. that Tuesday in November 1997. But Devlin knew that time-of-death estimates could be problematic. Three processes are of primary importance to time-of-death calculations— the progress of rigor mortis, the cooling of the body, and the settling and pooling of blood that begins when the heart stops pumping. All three are affected by ambient conditions, temperature, airflow, moisture, and their exact influence can be difficult to judge. Devlin recalled a mantra he had often heard from Dr. Robin Segal, a longtime Camden County medical examiner. We may say that death occurred at some point between the time the victim was last seen alive and the time the body was found. Modern jurors often assume that they will be presented with the kinds of evidence they have seen on television, DNA analysis that definitively condemns or exonerates the accused, expert testimony from blood spatter specialists, accurately reconstructed crime scenes. But the nature of Camden's violence often means that the crime lab has little to tell detectives. In 2015, gunshots accounted for all but one of the city's homicides. Most of the shootings occurred outdoors, where a killer's hair, bodily fluids, or fingerprints are unlikely to be recovered. Guns also make physical contact between perpetrator and victim unnecessary, reducing the odds that evidence gets transferred from one to the other. With their expectations frustrated, jurors sometimes grow dubious about the credibility of the prosecution, a tendency that helps make Camden homicides acutely difficult to try. Science is a great tool, Devlin told me, but it needs to be put in its proper context. In this case, Devlin noticed that the first medic on the scene had found Robin's body cold. Yet the medical examiner later judged it warm. Later still, a crime lab technician diagnosed a degree of rigor mortis too advanced, in Devlin's view, to be consistent with the time-of-death estimate. With forensic science sending mixed signals, Devlin fell back on what he knew about Robin's lifestyle. From the statements of Stan Courtney and others, Devlin was aware that Robin had been counting down to the arrival of her social security check. Yet, when investigators had entered her apartment, the check lay in an envelope near the front door. It had been slipped through the mail slot around 12.30 on Monday afternoon. Devlin could not fathom a scenario in which Robin would have failed to collect it. Junkies are expecting that check, he said. When it gets there, they're going to be dressed and ready to go. If that check hits the floor and she don't touch it, she's already dead. If true, that meant a substantial change in the timeline. The killing would have had to occur between Sunday evening, when Robin left Courtney's apartment, and 12.30 p.m. the next day. The frame for the crime had shifted by more than a day. Devlin and Fort share their windowless office, on the second floor of police headquarters, with Peter Longo, a 41-year-old investigator from the prosecutor's office, and Sean Donlan, 
46, who was plucked for the cold case unit from the police department. The room is hung with city maps stickered to show the locations of murders in recent years, and with a whiteboard devoted in part to tracking Devlin's taste for ill-defined neologisms, prosigillator, put a boogie on them, non sequiturs, that's because of Madonna, and hard-boiled cones. There's no such thing as a secret. Time is the enemy of love and homicide. Situated off the Central Detectives Bureau, the room contains four metal laminate-top desks. Rust stains bleed through the ceiling tiles, and blue and yellow Ethernet cords snake over mangy gray carpeting. The mood tends to be light-hearted, reminiscent of a bus ride with a college football team, although Fort often injects a little gallows humor into the conversation. The investigators dress in plain clothes. Fort and Devlin in blazers and slacks, Longo and Donlin in dark khakis and cotton button-downs. The lone liberal, Fort, who is bald and mustachioed, takes flack for watching the Rachel Maddow show. Donlin and Longo are hulking, gentle, soft-spoken men who generally pair off for lunch, a meal to which they devote a lot of thoughtful planning. Fort likes to lampoon their indulgences. Sean and Pete, for them, every day's Thanksgiving. Donlin and Longo, in turn, call the older men the dinosaurs for their spotty understanding of technology and pop culture. No strict parameters dictate that a case has gone cold, but of course time, months, years, decades, is the common element. One idiosyncrasy of investigating old murders is that the slow pace of the work can seem at odds with its underlying urgency. The frantic door-to-door canvassing that characterizes live homicide investigations, and which can keep detectives awake for days, has little place in cold cases. There is, however, a lot to read. Clinical reports, detective summaries, interview transcripts. Audio and videotapes demand playback, and crime scene photographs careful review. Devlin color-codes documents with fluorescent highlighters, while Fort makes longhand digests on legal pads. Donlin and Longo prefer computers. The job, to some extent, resembles that of a historian, who might work through substantial archival caches before interviewing living sources. The passage of time can give cold case investigators advantages over detectives responding to new murders. When Georgiana Jedrajewski, a homeless woman, was killed in Camden at the corner of 8th and Tulip Streets in December 2012, the neighborhood was controlled by a drug dealer. Less than a year later, he and a group of associates were arrested for drug trafficking. When Jedrajewski's case was reopened soon thereafter, previously uncooperative witnesses, who no longer feared reprisals, began talking. Two witnesses claimed that a man associated with the drug dealers was the murderer. He was subsequently apprehended. In the two years since the unit began operating, Devlin and his team have cracked four cold cases, including one from as far back as 2002. For the families of victims, the effect has often been cathartic, if joyless. But there's still a long way to go in repairing the local reputation of Camden's police force. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, in 2014, Camden had the highest number of excessive force complaints in New Jersey, even compared to larger cities such as Newark and Atlantic City. Father Jeff Putoff is a Jesuit pastor and the founder of HopeWorks in Camden, 
a nonprofit organization dedicated to job training, youth work, and trauma counseling. Camden is a city of tremendous grief over many years, Putoff told me. Addressing unsolved killings is absolutely emotionally meaningful for Camden. But in some ways, the unsolved murders are just the tip of the iceberg. What we have is a triaged response to an epidemic proportion of injury. Stop the killings, solve the killings. It's a little like saying that it was just the top of that iceberg that sunk the Titanic. Well, no, it was actually all the stuff underneath. In the year after Robin Hall's murder, investigators interviewed roughly 30 people in connection with the crime. Only a handful, with whom Robin spent many hours during her last weeks, held real interest for the cold case detectives. There was a man named Gus, who had lived across the street from Robin, and a woman named Janique, with whom Robin had become close as her addiction deepened. There was Kennedy Williams, and a man who everyone called Rogie. There was a particularly desperate man who lived alternately in an abandoned building and in a makeshift shelter in one of the city's cemeteries. Robin had often let him shower at her apartment. Taken together, their statements depicted a kind of narcotic micro-society. Its members loaned one another cigarettes and money and pooled resources for drugs. It wouldn't have been unusual for them to come or go from the ferry station apartments at any hour. But who killed Robin Hall? Well, they said, it could have been anyone. Of course, that's not quite true. The evidence indicated that Robin knew her attacker well. Her doors showed no signs of forced entry, and the crime scene suggested a viciousness unlikely to arise without some heated personal dispute. Robin's body had been arranged in a humiliated posture and bore evidence of sexual abuse. The apparent murder weapon made from a tube sock slung with a rod-shaped weight, was found bloodied at the scene. Had he not been imprisoned at the time of the murder, Robin's boyfriend would have made a natural suspect. Interviews suggested, however, that Robin had sometimes traded sex for drugs with male friends. This enlarged the pool of suspects. On the Tuesday afternoon, when Stan Courtney went to check on Robin, he brought with him a spare key that she'd kept at his apartment. That the front door was already open struck him as unusual. To the cold case detectives, it seemed even more so in light of something else in Courtney's statement. Courtney said that several of Robin's friends had stopped by the night before. They told him that they had knocked on Robin's door and received no answer. Courtney did not identify who had visited him, but a pattern of activity had been established at Robin's home. It wasn't difficult to guess at the group's makeup. It would have been useful, though, to know who hadn't come to Courtney's door. If Devlin was right, and the murder had taken place between Sunday evening and midday Monday, it was plausible that after Robin's friends knocked, the next person to exit her home, leaving the door open for Courtney to find, was the killer. That he had been inside all along. The alibi of any member of Robin's circle who had not appeared at Courtney's doorstep would thus bear special scrutiny. Of course, Devlin told me, the scene remained hazy. And by the time he opened Robin's file, it had become difficult to clarify. Courtney had been dead for 13 years. 
During the last months of 2015, the detectives sought out Robin's old friends. Gus, who no longer lives in the area, had attracted significant investigative interest after the killing. A sock that appeared to match the one used in the murder had been found in his home. The resemblance had ultimately been deemed superficial, however, and a DNA test failed to link its owner to the scene. Devlin and Fort do not consider this proof of innocence, but when they called Gus not long ago, he spoke to them willingly and in detail. The year before Robin's death had been difficult, he told them. He had lost his job and his marriage had collapsed. To cope, he had started smoking crack. He had since got clean and returned to work. Gus remembered something important from his days hanging out in Robin's apartment. He had seen the murder weapon before it was used in the killing. Robin had assembled it herself, he said, for protection. Theories of motive tend to have limited importance in solving homicides in Camden. What might seem to be a minor incident often later turns out to have produced dire consequences. In Robin's circle, where needs were urgent and minds often fogged, violence might have erupted suddenly. As they continued their investigation, Devlin and Fort turned their attention to Kennedy Williams, who was the only one of Robin's friends who had not cooperated with the original investigation. The detectives believed it would be a mistake to approach Williams without leverage, and the genetic evidence from the crime scene was missing. After a storage facility beneath City Hall flooded, evidence in several older cases that had been kept there disappeared. The cold case investigators had nothing to which they could compare Williams' DNA. They hoped that the other members of Robin's clique would be able to tell them what the vanished evidence could not. Finding them, though, proved difficult. Credit card bills, lease agreements, long-term phone numbers, the web of records that locates most adults within the context of modern life did not seem to exist for many of Robin's former friends. The disappearance of Janique, who had not so much as a driving license on file, represented an especially troublesome lacuna. Her original statement had complicated what Stan Courtney told police. Janique claimed that she had been the one to find Robin's body. Instead of alerting the cops, she said, she had called some of Robin's other friends, including, in all likelihood, Courtney. Courtney ultimately called the police. Did that mean that Janique, rather than the killer, had left Robin's door open? And if she had called Courtney, why would he have neglected to mention it to investigators? Devlin and Fort had little success tracking down the handful of people who might have been able to provide clarification. They, too, mostly seemed to have dropped off the grid. Other than Gus, Rogie was the sole exception. Through an ex-wife, the detectives obtained his phone number. But that breakthrough yielded just one conversation before Rogie stopped taking calls. Soon thereafter, they realized that he had given them an invalid address. It is not uncommon for once-cooperative interviewees, like Rogie, to reconsider. Even when witnesses do agree to testify in court, Camden cannot afford to offer them protection. The best the city can do is to provide a small stipend to cover moving costs and first month's rent. It is telling, though, that witnesses frequently refuse to leave the city. We're often talking about people who are destitute and who rely on a network of friends and loved ones, 
Scott Thompson, the chief of police, told me. It's very hard for them to survive outside that network. In the office one afternoon, I asked Devlin how investigations in Camden compared with those in the suburbs. Devlin was emphatic. Suburbanites were more likely to cooperate with police simply because they had a stake in the society the legal system represents. If I give you a grand jury subpoena, you're damn sure as shit going to the grand jury, he said. The same is true for anyone who has a job, a business, something to lose. People in the suburbs are more likely to talk to police simply to avoid going to the grand jury. And when they do go, they are less apt to lie because, technically, they can be arrested for that and they're scared shitless. In the last 25 years, the county's suburbs, which house more than five and a half times the population of Camden, have averaged just slightly more than nine murders annually, about 32 fewer than Camden. Some 84% have been solved. One morning not long ago, I met Tracy at the Camden County Prosecutor's Office, which occupies a gray concrete building separated from City Hall by a small green park. Gathered there were several dozen addicts, known locally as the Methodonians for their patronage of the clinic that stands nearby. In a conference room at the rear of the building, Tracy and I sat opposite each other at a long table. Around her left wrist, she has a tattoo that reads, All Love, with Amadeus's football number, 85, dangling from the end like a charm. Soon after Amadeus killed himself, Tracy had quit the police force. Her daughters welcomed the decision. It had been difficult, watching her put on her boots every day, while their family had seen no justice. Recently, her youngest daughter, Phanasia, who was close to Amadeus, had suffered from depression. This is one of them skeletons that's sitting up in our closet, Tracy told me of Robin's murder, and I think it's making everybody sick right about now. Even today, Tracy feels responsible for Amadeus' suicide. She had been too insistent that they move on after Robin's death, she said. At first, she'd even let Amadeus believe that Robin died of cancer. But how do you tell a nine-year-old that his mother was beaten to death and that no one knows why? Nonetheless, Tracy, who now works in security, had raised four children in Camden. All had gone to public school and on to college, a fact she relates with obvious pride. Tracy is an advocate for suicide prevention and speaks to families affected by street violence. Her neighbors look to her as a model of what is possible in their city. Tracy remembered that when she, Robin, and their brother Troy were children, their mother made sure that they never missed a Sunday at St. Bartholomew's on Kane Avenue. The church had been established by black Catholics in 1947, when they were unwelcome elsewhere. She remembered her parents' three-bedroom terraced home, in a part of the city that was quiet then. Everyone looked out for everyone else's children, Tracy said of the neighborhood, People still sat out on their porches all night. In the evenings, her father, Franklin, a kind, serious man who worked as an engineer at a phone company, had liked to read the papers, as televised news played in the background. Tracy remembered speaking to her father just before he died, about two weeks after Amadeus's suicide. Tracy was told that the cause of her father's death was cardiac arrest, but that didn't seem quite right to her. 
Franklin Hall was a big, healthy, darkly complected man, six foot five inches tall and more than 300 pounds, with size 17 shoes. At the end, he had faded pale. Franklin believed family was important. As a young couple, his parents had migrated from South Carolina and settled near the Camden waterfront. His wife, who was known as Gussie, had been the oldest of 16 children. He himself had seven siblings, and soon after they got together, he and Gussie married and had children of their own. Robin came first, followed by Troy, and then Tracy. It was a period of rapid change in Camden. When the city deteriorated, Franklin moved the family to the suburbs, into a large house with an expansive lawn. Troy became a Marine, and Tracy a cop. Franklin had a grandson, Amadeus, who could run like the wind. But somehow, things didn't work out. Somewhere, something had gone wrong. It's just too much, he told Tracy. I buried everyone. In the last few months, I've called Devlin and Fort several times to check in. Though other investigations had progressed, they had nothing new to report about Robin's case. This did not surprise them. As in countless Camden murder investigations, many of the footholds that the case initially seemed to offer, genetic evidence, several parties likely to have knowledge of the crime, had crumbled. Others might appear, but the detectives have no immediate reason to predict that they will. To proceed in their work as they do, with the assumption that every case can be solved, requires a certain frank indomitability, an existential fortitude. Devlin once told me that on the last day before his retirement, on New Year's Eve 2009, he worked until midnight. I felt like I had more to give, he said. When that beeper went off at 2 a.m. in February, and it was snowing, and you had to go to River Road in Camden, and there were no witnesses, that always made perfect sense to me. Some guys hated it. I never understood that. Once cases are over, however, Devlin prefers not to think about them. Everyone I don't remember is a blessing to me, he said. Every one of them I forget is a tender mercy. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.